Good morning, church. Everybody, I hope everybody's having a good morning so far. Situated up here. Got to make sure I talk to everybody on the side. I get, don't get in trouble. I get in trouble for my wife. I don't talk over here. So, got to do that. Now, it's been a while since I've been able to talk to you guys. I'm glad to see all your smiling faces. Uh, let's start with a prayer. Father God, thank you so much for your creation. God, for creating us in your image. Thank you for giving us the power of the Holy Spirit. May you fill this place with your spirit right now. God, we hope that this praise and this worship that we have created has been glorifying to you. Lord, just thank you so much for creating a place that we can come and freely worship you. I thank you for the beautiful building that we have on the inside and the outside. God, may we uh, take everything that we've learned today and go out and shine bright for your son, Jesus. Transform our hearts to hear your word this morning and see only Jesus. Thank you for sending your son from heaven to earth to teach us the amount of love that you have for us. Get us through Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So as you can see, or guess, uh, I don't look very comfortable up here right now. Because this is, I'm 36, and this is my first suit. And I don't feel very comfortable wearing it. Um, it's actually the, one of the first times I've worn something like this in front of a lot of people. So I told Sarah that by the end of it, the shirt underneath is going to be see-through because it's going to be a little hot up here. But again, I wanted to show you guys how uncomfortable can be used to benefit our growth, not only with ourselves, but in our walk with Christ. So I'm going to be unpacking some scripture from Ephesians this morning, if you want to follow me along. In your Bibles, um, as some of you know, this series has been called uh, Uncomfortable, I've been bringing you, and what it means to be uncomfortable in following Jesus, or become a Christian. And I took some time, did a little research, and compiled a list of people that you may know here, or any other church you may have visited, that make kind of us feel uncomfortable. So we have the over-aggressive hugger, who bypasses the side hug altogether, or the flip side of that, people who are indecisive and kind of don't know whether to go in for the hug or the, uh, the handshake, one of those. But as, in, as a youth minister, you learn to embrace the side hug. So you have to do the side hug, okay? Or the know-it-all who feels like they have to explain everything. Or the baby boomer who's afraid to share their wisdom with millennials. And also the younger person who's afraid to talk to the older generation about what they have to learn. Or the sweaty-handed person who lays their whole hand on you when it's time to pray. Or when they come together as, as a, when we come together and hold hands to pray, that sweaty-handed person kind of makes you not want to avoid that person at all, you know. Kind of like, oh, he's sitting over there. Okay, I'm going to go over here. And we have this new group called the FOMO group, which is the fear of missing out group. They promise to be at everything, but they kind of flake out when something better comes up. And, of course, we have the way-too-happy person. Who's always smiling, and but you think to yourself, they've got to be hiding something sinister. Or how about the person who shook your hand 15 times but still can't remember your name? So I, I could go on. I only listed seven here this morning, but there may and I may not be anybody here like that today. I can identify with the sweaty palm guy because I'm sorry, my hands sweat when I get nervous. I'm sorry. So if I ever put my hand on you and you feel that radiant heat, I'm sorry. I, that's just who I am, okay? 
Now, of course, you know, hugging. I'm, I'm a hugger. We did it growing up as a family. Whenever we saw somebody, mom, dad would get home, we'd hug. We see, haven't seen anybody in a while, we hug. So that's not uncomfortable for me. But I know that there are some people that meet you with a walk towards you to get away from you, with the, the handshake extended out. And that's fine. That's good. Will you want to go ahead and move to the next slide, please? We shouldn't expect our church to be free of people who get on our nerves. And that's a good thing. Now, the reality and truth of God's family is that people have different backgrounds and personalities and opinions. Now, it might get messy sometimes. Adopted sons and daughters of God can't just throw in the towel or retreat to just like me groups, you know. We need to lean in to the awkward hodgepodge collection of people who make up his church. Social conflict has been a part of the church since its earliest days. Think about the rivalry between Peter and John. Or the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas in Acts 15. There's a reason God's word tells us about social conflicts in the church. It's because the tension of a diverse combination of people coming together in Christ's name is at the heart of the gospel. It may be combustible at times, but it is the heart of the gospel. So this letter... Uh, the church in Ephesus that we call Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul, and Ephesus was a huge major city back at that time, and is on the close to the west coast of what we what, a, what is modern day Turkey. So it was a major trade route, and there's a lot of different kinds of people living in this city and going to this church. Now the residents of the city were surrounded by statues of Greek and Roman gods. Uh, there's even a temple to the Greek god Artemis, who was supposed to protect women during childbirth. It was actually so such a grandiose temple that it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, funny thing about that is that it took 250 years to build, only one night to destroy. So, have your kingdom somewhere, right? So, these residents that would walk to church had all these statues around them. Do you think they ever got, con- they ever got distracted by anything? Oh, sorry. What was I saying? They could actually reach out and touch these statues and these things. Do you think they might have been distracted? All of these things were saying, hey, you don't have to go there to know God. You can physically touch me right here. I'm right here. Paul states, starts with his letter with an introduction, thanking God for the work that has been done and by and through Jesus and the cross and the ability to speak to the church. Let me start in uh, chapter 2 and verse 11. You want to follow along? Uh, Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from a citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, if Paul writing this letter, the people that were hearing it would pick up on the imagery that he's talking about. The uh, temple in Jerusalem that most of the listeners had seen, had been to, offered sacrifices in, they would know that it was really a complex. You can see on the screens, hopefully. You see on the far left, we have a big tall wall there. That's usually the main entrance into the complex. 
then that short little wall that's on the uh, kind of like in the middle of the screen, that was this wall that Paul was alluding to. That wall right there kept Gentiles and unclean Jews out from being inside of God's presence or closer to God's presence. There's even signs in all the different languages that's, that warned people, said, if you go beyond this and you are not a Jew, then you're responsible for your own death. That's what they said on the signs. So this wall that Paul is alluding to, he's using this to have the people see with their eyes what he's talking about. So now there's no command given to the Jews to say, hey, construct this wall to keep Gentiles out. There's nothing in the Bible that says that when they're laying out everything that was supposed to be built for this temple. So the Gentiles couldn't have full access to God. See, God told the forefathers of Israel that they're to be set apart from their neighbors. And the Gentiles at that time, it was pretty bad stuff. They're like sacrificing kids and worshiping idols, awful stuff. So God's like, don't do that. You need to do this. So the Jews kind of took that as, okay, so they're below us. So if they want to, okay, you can go. You can go right here. But that's it. So you can't do that. So Paul's saying that humans have put up a wall saying that this group of people can only have certain access to God. Then Paul goes on in verse 15 to describe Christ's work in detail. He says, By abolishing in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So the laws that Israel created separating them and the Gentiles and consequently the Gentiles and God. Paul knew that this couldn't be true. I mean, after all, he was an educated Hebrew man. He knew the words of the prophet Isaiah that said the servant of the Lord will be a light to the Gentiles, chapters 42 and 49. In chapter 56 of Isaiah, God speaks to him and says, I will bring Gentiles to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Have you placed a wall limiting someone else's access to God? Have you placed a wall between yourself and God? You know, you've given your life to Christ, but you want a bigger house, bigger car, better car. Or giving your life to Christ, but you can't control your anger. And things are a little tense around your spouse when, when fights come up and arguments come up. You're giving your life to him, but you're addicted to shopping or approval from others, pornography. If you want to destroy that wall or barrier that's neither been set up by someone else or by you from truly knowing God, Jesus tells us in John chapter 14 that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's destroyed that for us. Another radical thing God has done through Jesus' work on the cross is his burial and resurrection. He's given everybody access to God. That's radical. He has given us all this access. The Jews thought they were limiting access to God for the sake of the Gentiles. But Paul's saying that's, that's not right. God was working through the Jews for the sake of the whole world. God finally had to come and show us what he meant. 
Now I'm a visual learner. Uh, it's better for me to, for my brain to understand and comprehend things if I watch somebody else do it. You know, I don't know if anybody else is like that, but piggyback nine years. Uh, some of you may remember this name, but there was a kid that used to attend here. His name was Jordan Brown. Uh, watched him give his life to Christ through baptism by his dad one day, one morning, one Sunday morning. And I was just coming to Sarah's friend at the time. I was introduced as Sarah's friend. <laughs> We'd only been dating for a few months, I, I understand. Um, but at this point, we hadn't really had that tough conversation. That topic had never really come up. I was still watching uh, every football game imaginable on Sunday, so priorities weren't in line yet. But then I came to this church, and I saw this young man make this commitment. Commitment that meant he was saying, God, I choose you because you have chosen me. And I said, I'm, he's willing to die to himself to be one with Christ. I saw him immersed in this baptistry right behind me, and that had a significant impact on me. That made me start asking Sarah, like, what was all this about? What's this baptism thing, this stuff? Of course, in her love, she asked her parents, and we started studying, and uh, I gave my life to Christ shortly thereafter. I couldn't go through life by myself. I had sinned for too long. I needed some help. I needed a Savior. Jesus is the only person who can give us that restart. New skin, if you will. He destroys the walls we put up, giving us access to truly knowing God. Paul knew that people coming together in Jesus' name from all sides of the train tracks, backgrounds, some natural-born enemies, all loving and serving one God together would stop onlookers in their tracks. Church, that's still good today. I still believe that today. Preaching a gospel of unity and diversity wasn't a recipe for amazing church growth back in the first century. Paul preached it hard. In Galatians, he says some pretty scandalous things. There's no Jew or Greek, neither slave nor free, no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That's scandalous. You can't do that. Some have used the analogy of a melting pot describing the church. It's a good analogy, but I like to think of it as a salad bowl. You know, each ingredient complements the other. The rest of the ingredients create a dynamic, amazing, surprising dish. And yes, salads can be amazing. Do we recognize the value of all the forms of diversity in the church? We have to be willing to engage in uncomfortable situations and relationships and conversations for the sake of unity in Christ. Jesus didn't call us to a comfy Christianity. He called us to a cross. We all need to be committed to that unity, a unity and diversity born out of a desire to worship the one God whose image we all bear. Worship, saying, Jeff, the music's too loud, the songs are too slow. I like newer songs. Lord's Supper's too long. Lights are too bright. Coffee's bad. Instead of crossing our arms when something comes up we don't like, let's open them to God and see what he is teaching us here. I'm going to be a little bit vulnerable this morning. For the longest time, I didn't like during the Lord's Supper when the trays were being passed around and it's silent. When my ADD kicks in, I'm like, okay, why well, it's silent? I start doing, I move around, do something, bother Sarah, do something. I just can't, it's silent. I didn't like it. But I asked God, what is he showing me here? I've learned to bask in the silence and solitude that he provides. The rocks cry out in silence, so will I. I was also 
skeptic on some of the older songs, too. Going to be vulnerable again. Until recently, God sent Sarah and I, and I was able to go on a vacation with my family. Um, I didn't really get some of the old songs. I mean, I sang them, don't get me wrong, but I didn't really get them. Because I didn't grow up in church, so I didn't have that foundation. But then, like I said, I was on vacation, and God showed us many things on that trip. But one thing he allowed me to do each morning was to get up and watch the sunrise, usually with my dad. Now, I usually have my headphones in, listening to Hillsong, something like that. But then the sunrise showed me what an old song meant, this one right here. Like I said, I had music in my ears playing. And I saw this sunrise, and that is just a picture from my phone. No filter, nothing. That's just God at his best. I had Hillsong in my ears. I took my headphones out, took this picture, and the first thing that came to my mind is, Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. I got that song. I asked God what he was showing me. That's what he showed me. So there may be things that we do here that drive you bonkers. But I ask you to talk to God about it. Ask him what he's wanting to show you through that. It's also an opportunity to practice that sacrificial love for others. It may not be your preference, but try singing your heart out instead. Instead of lamenting over something that may not be our preference and folding our arms and protest, perhaps we can humble ourselves and participate anyway. Worship is supposed to be God word, not me word. I want to wrap this up to this morning with a story from our Savior in Luke chapter 15. You guys want to follow me along there? So Jesus is surrounded by tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were employed by the Roman government at the time. So they were set apart from the Jews as to not associate with them. So that's why there's, whenever you read the Bible, there's always tax collectors and sinners because the Jews kind of made them get in that group. It's like, y'all are terrible, so get over there. So Jesus was even sharing meals with them. I know, scandalous, right? So Jesus tells us a story about he, how he and his father had this great plan and was destroying walls even before Paul had to remind the Ephesians. Uh, Jesus talking about the parable of the lost sheep here. So now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go out and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So Jesus is surrounded by these sinners, and he tells them that even if one of his sheep gets lost, he will go out and search for him. He doesn't say if the sheep is Jewish, he will go find him. He says the sheep, that's all of us. He says that he will put us on his shoulders and carry us back. The story tells us many things, but I want you to take this from the today. Jesus wants you a part of his community. You may turn from him for a while, but if you turn from Jesus, that means you're turning to something else. He wants us 
to be a part of a community, his church. The Bible tells us that the shepherd will call his neighbors and friends together, and they rejoice together. Just like the rejoicing in heaven when one of us repents and tells God, we have sinned, and we can't go on making our own decisions. We need a Savior to help us. What's it going to be, church? Are you going to let Jesus destroy that barrier that you have been putting up restricting your access to God? Because it's not supposed to be there. Christ went to the cross and died, then rose three days later so that you don't have to go through that. Jesus wants you, and we want you a part of this church. So we're getting ready to sing this, what we call the invitation song here in a minute. Um, if anybody's in need of prayer, or if you want to know more about breaking down this wall of hostility, we ask you to come forward. Let's stand real quick. I want to say a prayer before we get started, Jerome. If you have any need, after, after I get done praying, if you have any need, please come forward. Um, let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for your everlasting word in the Bible that tells us about your everlasting love that you have for us. God, how you showed that in sending your son Jesus to earth to teach us about a new life that we can have in you. Thank you for that access we have through Jesus, our Savior. Our way, our truth, and our life, God. Forgive us when we choose to build a wall keeping us from totally knowing you through church, worship, your community. Get us back into your community of love, mercy, and forgiveness that can only be found through your son, Jesus. Ask all of this in his name. Amen. Please come forward if you have any need while we worship.